this was a very interesting field. So we were looking at things um, like its relationship to performance art and some of the things that were happening in contemporary art at the same time in the late, late 60s and early 70s. Um, I've given, um, I have a whole folder of reference material and reading material surrounding this if you are interested. And um, I will have, um, make sure that you can, that you can download it. Um, but yeah, so this was an interesting point of departure for me because it, it, this is in the early 90s. Um, there started to be um, a bit of a revival and interest in this type of music and practice, especially in Europe. And so I was kind of into, um, into the rock and post-rock music scenes then when I was at school studying there. And that led me to working with um, a, couple of, a couple of artists who I'm still very good friends with now, and we still work together occasionally. And that's um, Paul Douglas, um, who's also known as Rosie Parley, and he records for um, Touch and Migo Records. And Dion Workman, who is now um, retired from music, but he was an electroacoustic composer. This came from the dissipation of our band, which was called Fallon, which was a noise rock band. And we basically did everything that we could in our time and to um, play as, as loudly and as atonally as possible. Um, and we ended up making a couple of records, which were Re released um, in the United States in the mid-90s on the record label that was run by Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth. So with Sonic Youth being our kind of fans and endorsers, we became kind of popular at a very young age. We were only in our early 20s and it was a bit of a culture shock, but we um, had a bubble of success during 95, 96, 97 and we toured a lot and met a lot of very interesting people. And um, the three of us became completely disinterested in rock music and more and more and more interested in what was going on in experimental music, especially what was happening in Europe at that time. So that was the beginning of um, labels like Migo and um, Christian Fenez, um, Peter, Farmers Manuel, all of these people who were coming out of techno and creating a kind of abstracted version of electronic music. And also realizing this marriage between these type of influences of electronic music and improvised music, which was happening very rapidly and at a very interesting sort of um, angle, um, whereby these kind of um, scenes were starting to collaborate more and more. And then the American post-rock scene that we had sort of also been part of was also melding with that so there were things like um, coming out like um, uh, Mouse on Mars and Oval and these type of bands where there was this sudden collision where electronic music and rock music was was starting to meet in a realm that I guess is now called post-rock and um, yeah so that was kind of what that was where things started to take graft for me. And then um, I created an album for the Mill Plateau record label 
I knew an artist in Frankfurt who I met um, through um, meeting at a festival, Akim Walscheid, a really interesting artist, and he introduced me to the Mill Plateau label, who asked me to make a record for them. And I made a record for them called All Cracked Medias, which was a conceptual approach to um, um, basically how I could um, how I could make music um, with a completely non-structural, um, randomised approach. Of course, I had been looking at Brian Eno and chance operations of John Cage and all of these things, which um, which have influenced me and many other people. Um, so. I figured uh, I had a Roland machine, which was called a Roland uh, VS880, which is a multi-track um, hard disk recorder and an Apple um, like laptop, like circa 95 laptop, which I could hack the um, the Roland. I recorded all of these sounds, which and sampled many sounds. Um, and of instrumentalists and compiled them into this um, into this Roland um, machine and I started to make work which was based on the randomization of triggering of these sounds and um, I created this album through that process and then I toured and performed with this process um, for a number of years, up until about 2002. Um, and the can, we hear, can we hear some of that? Um, <laughs> is it possible? I can't actually find it on the internet. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. <laughs> but I can send it to you. Okay. Um, I think I think everyone here would probably be really interested in yeah. hearing about that. It definitely ties into a lot of... Um, <clears throat> I mean, what you've spoken about so far certainly ties into a lot of what Florian's been delivering in the um, first year module, uh, sorry, se uh, first semester module of the second year, we start to look at the idea of cracked media even and looking at mm -hmm. how we might kind of abuse technology yes. to find new, um, I guess, yeah, find new sounds almost. Exactly, exactly, to find new creative methods of using things. And really, honestly, to, to date, I still. Um, I still do this, and you will probably see when you see how shambolic my um, Ableton Live sessions are um, that this is still really a, um, a maxim for me. I didn't really, um, I didn't really intend to um, uh, to use um, Ableton, but I was forced to use it for a job that I was doing, and I, um, I kind of. Yeah, just somehow instinct. My method is that I instinctively find um, uh, creativity in the gaps and the problems sometimes. So, yeah, like you say, it's like the deconstruction of of the of the material or or questioning the medium itself is often the place where some of the more creative and interesting ideas come from. And. Um, so from from that process, um, I kind of yeah I developed a quite a long um, path with that, 
in terms of what happened to me professionally in those years, um, I went to Amsterdam to the Stein Studios, which was it still exists, I think, and they are a foundation which is, was set up for the development of live improvisation with electronic instruments. And um, I spent uh, six months there making another record um, using their technology, um, which had various pros and cons. Um, and it was it was called Lisa Live Interactive Sampling Audio, which was kind of more built for people that were using that wanted to work with software and triggering with live instruments. Um, and yeah, that was an important part of a year or so for me. Then I went to New York and I did a residency. Um, using that software and developing that with a bunch of musicians, composers and improvisers. And I made another record there, which was um, called uh, The Black Moths Play the Grand Cinema, which was based loosely around um, the concept of the way that um, uh, music and image are, are inspired and, and influenced together. Um, and then um, I started to work with kind of, a, I really wanted to get away from technology and I wanted to get into um, applying some of the concepts that I had used in my more electronic work into an acoustic um, and live musical environment. So I started to work with people who were improvisers and instrumentalists, but often using unorthodox strategies for creating work. So, for example, playing games with music, musicians, like writing songs and asking the performer to play it without knowing it, people doing um, having musicians do overdubs on recordings that they don't hear the original version or the, they don't hear the meter or anything. And I used these methods and, and created some pretty strange and abstract music through that. Um, and all the while I was looking at a lot of the methods of people from the, who were working with this, what is called electroacoustic or ac acousmatic music and especially surrounding France with composers like uh, Luc Ferrari, who was also in the 1960s and 70s composing music which was about creating these kind of strategies, problems for musicians to deal with. And that in itself creates a kind of discourse where somehow some of the theoretical discussions surrounding this type of work probably has more to do with contemporary art than it does to do with jazz music or improvisation so so much. So that's yeah, that's kind of where um, where that led me. And in the last <coughs> few years, um, I have been um, composing music for films. Um, 
short films, uh, television commercials. I confess, I'm old enough <laughs> to confess that. <laughs> um, when I was 21, I swore that I would never sell out and do that kind of stuff. But when um, no one knows who you are and you make something for a cheese company in Australia, then you can live for six months, then I think it's kind of okay. <laughs> um, so I'm not super embarrassed about that. I would be if I showed any of them to you. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to show you any of those. <laughs> um, and by being involved with that, I mean, all of my friends who are film directors are television commercial directors. So it's the kind of thing that seems to be a, a really it seems to be a method of survival for, for a lot of directors, I think. So after I had lived in Europe up until 2005, I moved back to New Zealand. And I did this, making music for films. Um, and I started to work with the film directors. And um, not so much, I mean, one, the first film that I was asked to do the soundtrack for, um, I, com I convinced the um, producer and the director that the film didn't need any music. So <laughs> that was a really cool job. <laughs> um, and, and that basically what that meant was that um, what I was doing was just simply sound design and my art background started to make me think about the way that sound is used in space and how sound is used with image and um, yeah that kind of informed the way that I made these these sort of uh, compositions which use very little music and a lot of space and noise um, I then was um, teaching at the England Art School in Auckland for a while and there I was making um, study, I was teaching part-time and studying part-time so it was, a, it was really hard because I didn't know whether I was a student or a teacher half of the time. I had to really remind myself what, what role I was in. And partly that's why I feel a little bit nervous today because um, because I feel a little bit like I'm a student doing a presentation. <laughs> but anyway, do you think um, do you think you'll ever stop being a student though? I don't think I'll ever stop being a student. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think you discover something every day. Um, I just discovered yesterday a documentary about Luke Ferrari, and I was started to become a student again and start to think about, wow, this is amazing. There's this whole other world or aspect of him as a composer which I had never known about. And um, yeah, so that kind of went on into, into a strange sort of um, place where then I started to work um, with a dance company. And this was a really interesting thing. Um, to do for the last couple of years. Um, I've been a composer for the Mao um, Lemmy Bonifacio Crimson House 
dance company. And basically what I do with that is I make um, sheets of noise which are used as backdrops for dance. I can show you some examples of the kind of work that they do later on. Um, but it's a very, um, it's a very um, large physical theatre group that use light and sound. And the way that I'm directed to use sound in that is the way that is more similar to the way that a lighting director will be told to create an environment. There's no music, there's no notes, there's no real um, points or cues, but it's just creating these fields, these sonic fields. And um, with that, um, I use a lot of harmonic um, drones, which is stuff that comes out of my own work. Um, I work a lot with these kind of, um, I guess, ratios of um, random um, patterns of drones that will create um, unusual effects in, uh, in an architectural space. Um, by amplifying things to a certain volume and getting physical relationships to the sound and space. And the dancers, are, um, they really love it because they have this incredible kind of realm to play within. And the audience um, either don't even notice that it's there or they get terrified by it depending on how it's, how it's um, played. Um, and that's been a really interesting process, um, and um, that's where my work had led me to. Um, and then um, I also have been making a practice of, um, of writing very simple songs that require um, no um, uh, no amplification, no documentation, and no um, uh, video or YouTube or or anything, because I kind of wanted to, as a conceptual idea, I wanted to return music for me back into this completely immediate activity and. Through working with the performing arts and dancers and so forth, I think that I learned a confidence uh, or a certain kind of strategy with them about how they enacting how they are enacting space and enacting an audience and dealing with a very immediate thing. And so, in terms of the whole arc of technology in my lifetime, in my career as an artist. I feel like what has happened is I've gone from this, from, from going through the arc of the complete overload to coming to a point where now I want to make music which has nothing to do with it somehow. I want to have something that is an absolutely, um, an absolutely immediate uh, live performance. <coughs> of something that is still informed by the old cracked medias and by the acoustic, uh, electroacoustic music and all of the 
technology and so forth and stuff that has informed me and educated me as I've gone along to now, at this point in time, I feel that it's somehow it's appropriate to have nothing to do with it. So for example, I've just done a tour, a concert tour around Italy, which I've used no amplification and one instrument, a classical guitar, and sometimes uh, no instruments at all, just an acapella vocal performance. And that is terrifying. <laughs> it's really terrifying, but it's somehow it's really interesting to be able to just sort of go into this place where um, there is this whole other um, aspect of, of improvisation where you have to respond where I don't have my laptop and I don't have my MIDI controller, I don't have my guitar pedals, I don't have my electric guitar and somehow I have to do something that I feel is relevant. Um, it, for me it's an, it's an exercise in performance and it may not be very um, uh, it may not be very uh, successful it, it, it's many times it's a failure it's a lot of times it's a struggle but for me that has always been the thing that has been interesting about music and my interest in music from the beginning was to set up these kind of strategies where there was always a, a, a kind of fight with it if that makes sense do you think that's always important um, I don't think that it's always important I think it's important if you want to, uh, if you really want to break something. In terms yeah. of like breaking the mold, mm. so trying new things or being a pioneer. Yes, yeah. it's important. Do you think it's important to struggle? I think it is important to struggle somehow with the process a little. I mean, in terms of the technology. When I first started making music, I had a, a cassette four-track. Then I upgraded to a reel-to-reel four-track. And with that, I made my first three records. I made th two records with the band Thala. And I recorded and produced a number of other people with that machine. When I got Pro Tools, 24 tracks, and everything, I became less and less productive. When I had that limitation of having a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine, I had to make decisions. Very, um, we had to work really hard to make really good performances because we were so limited by what we had to work with. And it wasn't that it wasn't impossible to go to a studio with Pro Tools in 1996. It was just that it was very expensive then. And so what we would do is work with these machines. Somehow, that low, f I don't want to say lo-fi, it's not really lo-fi, it's really hi-fi. They sound really great, this TAC four-track machine. And you have three people, drums, two guitars, and um, a vocalist. And you've got to work with that, those limitations. And somehow, during that period, when I think about it now, I was much more creative and productive than I am now. Because now I can sit down and I've got 
my laptop and I can do 24 tracks with that, or 64 probably, I don't know. And I just don't really even know where to start with it. And I quite often becomes, I've got hard drives at home like this that are like stacking up and they're just log jams of unfinished ideas. And I think somehow there's something, there's a real virtue in creating a limitation. And um, when you have some kind of, um, some, uh, it doesn't always have to be a fight, but it can be a limitation that says, okay, I can, you know, it's the same with photography. You know, you've got 36 or 24 photos on a film camera and you think much more than you, about what you're shooting than you do with uh, a digital camera or a phone. No, I think, I think some, of, some of our students, especially from the first year of degree, if there are many from first year degree, might, might agree with you that imposing limitations sometimes can be quite frustrating as well. Can be frustrating as well, yes, yeah. yes. Those might be a set of limitations that also um, you're, you're, you're trying to fight against, sort of in this, in this situation we've imposed on them. Yes. For instance, so how, how or what kind of methods do you use to set up your own limitations? I mean, that's different for every project, right? Yeah. But, but how, how might you start something like that? Um, I think it's about finding the palette um, and defining a palette. Um, and being like, well, I, I know that I'm going to work with guitar, bass, and drums, or I'm going to work with violin, or cello only. And I can use cello and, say, cello and voice, or cello and delay effects, or something. And when I know, when I have defined the palette, I find it easier to work productively, or creatively with, the, with, the, with that limitation somehow. Is that because, do you think for, for you, is that because it's about exploring one element in depth that means that you, you kind of, um, you're trying to get all of the sonic potential that's possible out of yes. this perhaps limited palette? Yes. Um, yes, exactly. Why is that interesting, do you think? Uh, because it's interesting the variations that you can hear from one <coughs> stretch into its limit. Um, for example, the, the thing that the, um, with the electric guitar is, <coughs> for example, the I think that the electric guitar is so, um, it's so potent as a, as a, an, as a symbol, as a thing. It's, everyone can do something with it. Everyone in the world can do something with an electric guitar, and most people have tried at some stage or other. Now, if you were to look at some of the other, the, um, the faults in the instrument, for example, I've worked a lot with the faults and the, the problems with the instrument, the buzz, the, um, the sound when you knock it, and it's like dong, and it sounds like a gong, and all of the, it, um, the tuning up and down, all of the problems that happen with the guitar is a palette that I feel that you can can work with. Um, and you can, with something like an instrument like the electric guitar, you can go, it's endless almost. You can go and go and go and go and go and go and find all of these other um, sonic um, elements and 
Um, so even yeah. with, with a guitar, have we, heard, have we heard all the sounds a guitar can make yet? I wonder, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, there's famous de guitar deconstruction that started with, you know, the people, that are, the most famous people around that, um, of course, would be Son of Youth. But um, before then, there were people like, they, um, like Glenn Branca, who was creating symphonies with people playing electric guitars with open tuned to the same note. Hundreds of people playing guitars with chopsticks. And, um, and um, Fred Frith, who was um, playing with um, electric fans and um, knives and things like that. Right to the extent of Christian Markley, who drove a truck with an electric guitar attached to the back of it, dragging it along the ground. <laughs> so it's like the electric guitar has been pretty much deconstructed as far as you can see, but in terms of the artistic gesture, but people still continue to use it, and that's kind of fascinating. Mm. And what I find very fascinating about it as well is that people are also quite often now a lot of the people that I'm interested in are kind of returning to an almost traditional form with it too. So I went through a phase myself where I wanted to learn how to really play because I'd never really been able to play. Um, I, as I explained in my beginnings, um, I was at art school learning from um, a teacher who was doing exactly that, um, hitting electric guitars with chopsticks. As, percussive instruments. So that was my introduction into music. And when I first started to play music, it was all about making uh, noise like that. It wasn't, I never really knew how to play. So yeah, there's that whole kind of thing. And I know that this is not an instrumental academy so much, but I'm sure that everyone has some kind of <coughs> instrumental thing. Well, do those? Do, I wonder if that if that stops at acoustic instruments. Do those same things apply to electronic instruments? I think so, definitely. Looking at the way that people are using things like modular synthesizer, modular synthesizers and um, software now, I mean. Yeah, there is it, it is totally possible to make that the extent the extended um, technique um, on the instrument. Do yeah. you think Do you think there's something inherent in, in acoustic instruments though that, that lends itself to, to that type of experimentation that perhaps you might not find in electronic music as um, much? I think the only the only thing is that um, is the tactile. The physical aspect. So, the th I know that there is that there is possible to create electronically with <coughs> tactile surfaces and tactile, um, even down to like gloves and things. But there's something that that's different about an uh, acoustic instrument in that there is an actual physical relationship to it. That say playing a violin or a cello. There is a real physical um, relationship to it, which is uh, more um, body-based than than something that is key 
relating to something. Sure, know, sure. Because there's so much more movement. Mm. And that it's more volatile in a way. I, so, I certainly, uh, you know, I, I would agree with you in that. And also, what you know, what kind of Stein um, School in Amsterdam, one yes. of their kind of re key research points is is the idea of touch in music. Yes. yes. And they're very much concerned with the way that music and touch are, are kind of connected in lots of uh, in lots of ways. So yes. Michael, I can never remember his surname. Uh, <coughs> yeah. Kolo, Kolo, Kolovitz or something. Yeah. I can't remember off the top of yeah, my head. He, he was a fan, he was a founding member of, of Stein, and he uh, he passed away in, in 2010. But he 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 um, his kind of main research was was actually looking at this pair of of gestural controllers yeah. with microphones on them. Really interesting, mm. um, really interesting work. Definitely coming from a um, an experimental, a noise-based perspective, but ultimately that's what he was looking for in a way. He yeah. was looking for a way of being able to use computers and being able to use all of the kind of magical things that they afford us in terms of sonic potential, manipulation, um, and so on, but through digital means, but kind of um, rejoining the physical nature of, of instrumentation and, and playing with um, yeah, with all of that potential. Yes. And I think there have been lots and lots of projects that have looked towards, towards that. Yeah, yeah. And still, now we're starting to see things appear on Kickstarter. We also see Imogen Heap a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago is also designing these gestural gloves. And this stuff yes. now seems to starting to be surf like surfacing. Yeah, I think it's really starting to happen now that those things are becoming... Um, they're actually becoming a real um, possible um, thing. Um, maybe I could show you a clip and then um, and then um, follow on from what we were just discussing because it brings to mind something that um, this was a, a few years ago. I did this music for these um, people.
Now, um, this, at this point, um, I composed the music as a completely free, it was its own thing. And the, Gustavo Ramirez, the choreographer, and his company choreographed their work to that piece of music. And, um, or kind of sound, noise and sound, I don't know if you can really call it music. I don't know. Maybe we do. And then, anyway, um, a conversation that I was having with a lighting, a lighting designer, Tim Grucci, who I worked with a lot, with the Mao company, and also here. Um, his video design is based on uh, his lighting design, sorry, I should say, excuse me, his lighting design is based on video. So when he has a stage, he projection maps the whole thing. He has um, Isadora running huge 10K um, projectors um, that are doing all of the lighting for him. And I'm sitting next to him um, doing sound. So we started a conversation, we haven't done this yet, and I know that there are people doing this, it's entirely possible to do, but a really interesting area. He has a video projector coming this way, and a video projector coming down from the top, and that's how he designs and controls all of his lighting cues. And what we were discussing is this possibility to then use that video field with a, as a grid, um, with an invisible grid, and that there are certain places within the space on that grid which will trigger sound. So if a dancer is improvising and he or she moves through the space and hits a certain point in the space, then that will trigger the sound cue rather than the cue being for the composer chasing the sound, um, chasing the dancer. And so we started to explore this a little bit and we did some experiments with it using Ableton and Isadora linked together and using this concept of creating this, this space, this, this active field. Yeah, so using the Connect. Yeah, and this so is so exactly Connect the Xbox. Yeah, Connect, Connect camera, the three D. It's a three D camera. Yeah, and it was a really interesting experiment. We never followed through. We haven't done anything with it yet, but it's something that I think is a really interesting field to explore, because there is this whole pop, this whole potential. Like starting with the, um, I'm, I'm so sorry I can't remember his name. Stein Michael. Um, I'll find it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's worth it's looking really at worth this looking guy. Um, what he was really working towards was this total fusion of physicality, not just in terms of the touch-sensitive aspect with the sound, but also this potential for um, in this world to um, to create this realm, which is a completely live and uh, uh, um, active space. Um, and yeah, so yeah, so this kind of idea—that's something that was I'm really interested to to continue to play around with. Is this idea of, of working with a, a total spatial um, um, 
Okay. Has anyone come across uh, anything like that before? Yeah, yeah. I assume people doing it with, with PD or with, with Macs. Yes. Like stuff that is connected to webcams and, and yes. streaming sounds. Yes, yes. There's also that uh, quite famous female artist who developed some gloves. Yeah. 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 That was Imogen Heap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and, the and then when she moves in the, on stage, she can enter different reverb times. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah, I think it's kind of endless what you could do with it. This all kind of started with this guy, David Rockaby, in mm -hmm. 1965, and he developed his own set of cameras before the 3D mapping or anything like this existed. And he, he developed this, this quite, quite famous project called The Very Nervous System, which was like, it was a really, really influential project. Um, and it's really funny to watch, because it's uh, um, him, him dancing. Um, but yeah, he, he basically makes this reactive room in the 60s that means that you can dance around in this room and, the, and it's completely reactive wow. to his movements. Wow. wow. Um, so it's also a kind of, you know, a, a similar concept in terms of having those points in 3D space that would also be triggers to particular sounds. Yeah. And I can imagine in, you know, in a project like this how powerful that could be. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of amazing what you could do with it. what... Um, in terms of the drama that you can create when that when that is actually controlled by the dancer, for example. Mm -hmm. One of the problems that I have always had, I've done music for dance uh, companies, three or four different companies, one of the problems I've always had is that they always like to choreograph everything and then the music is made to fit it. And then, um, and then when it comes to the potential for it to move, or sway one way or another, it becomes very difficult. So it seems the practice of contemporary dance doesn't really have a lot to do with music. It has a lot to do with the choreography and the drama of the space, but it never really, um, they sort of stick music on at the end, and, and I find that very frustrating. Um, so how, how do you work on this project in practical terms um, at, at the moment without the cameras? Um, at the moment, they just choreograph to the sound to the second, and for okay. some reason, I don't know how dancers can do that, but they So it's playback. So, yeah. <laughs> it starts and In then... In that piece, it's playback. Right. And the other company that I work with, there is a lot of improvisation. So that's why I need to use the, um, Ableton, and it's like DJing eight channels or 16 channels at the same time, to and watching the dancer and what he or she does. So you're actually kind of following them around yeah. the stage? Yeah. And that's scary because it's like flying an airplane um, <laughs> when there's 400 people in the room and if you fuck up, then the whole show crashes. And yeah, that's a nightmare. It's never happened, it hasn't happened. And that's one thing that's kind of incredible. I always have a backup, but I've never crashed. And um, that's what's quite an amazing thing about Ableton like running really big sessions and doing live things and and um, yeah it's quite powerful so I got, became kind of intrigued by Ableton as a as a work surface for that so you're using controllers connected that yeah, you can just you can get that kind of physicality from yeah yeah the way that you move things around yeah and then that's in integrated with video and light. I can show you a little bit of that um, work. Um, 
His name is Michael Wazbiz. <laughs> That's why I never remember. I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it either. Is there anyone that's Dutch in the room? No Dutch people? Is it Weisswiss? Weisswiss, maybe. I like your version better. <laughs> <laughs> because they're like mi microphonic surfaces, um, some vocalists, sound effects, sound fields, sound beds, um, subs, and all of this stuff that all has to be controlled in this live situation. And then, um, uh, for example, like um, the, the dancers that are doing really physical um, uh, stuff are mic'd with um, radio mics. And then the other aspect, which is re was really quite a cool discovery in the development of another work, was the um, using the radio mics and instead of a microphone out, you're just using it as a MIDI trigger. So you can have someone moving around and doing, and, and that their movement or their clothing can um, can be the thing that causes the MIDI trigger that then causes a light to go or something like that, or a video to pop up. So it's very interesting, a very intense process because the whole thing is like a, it's like a one sort of big being that's 
a whole bunch of people and a whole lot of technology all kind of making this thing happen. Um, for me, a really important um, and influential group, um, which I've put in, I've made a folder for you all, which has all of this reference anyway, videos and some reading as well, um, was a Japanese group called Dumb Type. And that was the composer, part of the project was um, the composer Raijio Aikida, who has become really well known now just as a solo artist. But I, can, I actually found some stuff of theirs which would be quite cool to show you. <coughs> um, Pretty interesting for um, that kind of concept, early early idea of that kind of idea of the fusion of light and sound and physical. They were really influential in that. So that um, that's also in the um, material if you want to see more reference of what they do. But they were really important um, in a lot of ways because I think this was like in the early or well, mid '90s, and they, I guess, it was kind of quite dramatic what they were doing with their fusion of light and sound and that co-relationship between the way that the sound and the light is triggering the, the effect and. The, choreography so precisely and it reminds me yesterday I was reading in Electronic Beats an interview with um, Michael Girard from the Swans 
and he was saying how he how much he hates electronic music <laughs> and um, the, the best electronic concert that he ever saw was um, uh, when uh, Genesis P. Orange from Throb and Gristle was invited to do a DJ set and he had no records and, um, and he just um, turned the PA on and off rhythmically <laughs> turned the PA on and off for an hour <laughs> <laughs> you don't get any more resourceful than that. <laughs> no, making minimal techno by turning the PA switch on. I thought that was kind of a nice thing that you described. I thought, yeah, I could tell it. In some ways, I kind of imagined that. I remember when I used to go to raves in the 90s that a friend of mine used to joke that, that like some people would dance to a car alarm <laughs> so yeah, I guess there's that kind of thing. Coming but that, but that actually ties ties in quite closely to a lot of your process. Yeah. In a way of or that that idea of the misuse of technology. Yes, exactly. In order to 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 create music or to find new new and interesting sounds. Yes. I'd just like to kind of reel back a little bit yep. and just throw out a really simple but extremely complex question yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the thing I think it's there could be a thousand different definitions of what experimental music is mm -hmm. but what what is experimental music to you um, in, a, in a general sense it's um, at this um, point in time um, I kind of think that it's over <laughs> I, really do. I really do. I kind of think that it's. I think that it's something that is actually, like, as far as like Western, late twentieth century experimental music, as we know, improvisation through John Cage, Stockhausen, it, all of this. I think this is finished. I think the chapter is closed now. I think what's really interesting now is that. Um, experimental music is also potentially something that can come I think that what Western world is realizing is that experimental music can come from Indonesia and Africa and it, you know it, th these uh, these places are also places that have very very if not richer culture and music and that that is what maybe somewhere where the word of experimental could be applied from a western perspective from a western perspective maybe maybe not only but maybe that seems to i think that's the place where um where uh things are happening that are a kind of a more valid evolution to me, somehow, that's just my opinion. How, how have we how have we got to that point of closure? Do you think uh, on that? Are we are we at a point now where we can't experiment anymore, where we can't push the boundaries any further? Not necessarily. I think that there are a lot of other factors, but having there are a lot of other factors that can that can be part of the the definition of experimental. 
but going to uh, 10 years ago going to a concert and sitting in silence waiting for someone to play one note for me was like that was what my parents would think was experimental so I felt it was irrelevant that this the reduction and the abstraction had got to this point right now that's not minimalism it's John Cage all of this stuff was happening in the 60s um, so the idea of something being experimental being so well the idea that experimental music is somehow associated with this idea of radicalism of some kind of notion of, ra of political radicalism. I think that is a finished. I think that's what I mean. Is that because we're seeing this kind of popularist movement, or popular culture in general, and let's say an underground culture, they're starting to meet? Yes. In a way that, that they didn't meet? I think so. Back then? Yes, I think that's really true. I think that's really, really true. That that the well, there's just an information age yep. that has created this this kind of. I mean, I don't want to sound like an old person talking, but when I was a teenager, we would really like have one tape for like a week, you know, and I would listen to one tape for like six months, and then six months later I would get another tape and listen to that, or. Then I would get an LP and listen to that for like a year, and the next year I would get another one. And now I've got everything I want, just there. I can just go and to my laptop and I've got everything that I would ever want. So the, the relationship that you have to history is quite, that what we have now is quite different. So I think there's less analysis somehow too. <coughs> and the notion of experimental music being um, uh, now a, a kind of historical activity. I went to see on Sunday, um, was it Sunday? Yes. Last Sunday I went to see John Tilbury, who is one of the most important piano players of British piano player, one of the best um, uh, performers of John Cage and Morton Feldman and Webern, etc. With modern repertoire, he's the master he's in his late seventies. And I went to see him play um, Feldman pieces, and there were a lot of people there. It was really amazing, and I realised though at the same time this is also like it's a it's an, it's not an act of uh, thing anymore. It's a historical thing. Mm. I was in Bologna at an experimental music festival and all of the people on the bill were people that were working in the late 70s and early 80s. So the experimental music festival wasn't, didn't have anyone new. It didn't have Lucretia Dalt or any of the people who are really working with experimental music now. But it's all the historical people like Fred Frith and John Zorn and all of these guys that have been doing this for years and years. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that the experimental music thing is also its own kind of brand now. What's the new brand? <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't Does know. there need to be a brand? I don't know if there needs to be a brand. 
But I think that the process or having an understanding of a holistic idea of what the process of creating music is, depending on what your facilities and your time and space are, is a very important thing. And that's why I'm quite interested in this, like just from a musicological perspective, I'm really interested in like the West Saharan guitar bands that are around now that are really starting to become really popular. And this is because this, the technology traveled to these places and then the technology altered the way that the music was created. And, um, and you know, it's like if everyone in the West Sahara had a laptop and um, Channel X or whatever, then the music would be different. But they're making music with electric guitars and little amps and it has this incredible sound to it. And another thing that really fascinates me is the way that these things evolve, like in terms of this sort of perception that we have about world music. I traveled through Indonesia and China and every town that I went to there was a hardcore scene and there was like straight edge hardcore bands and punk, skate, skate punk hardcore scenes. And I was like, well, this is really interesting because you could go from one side, you could go anywhere across the planet. You could go from New Zealand, the, right at the bottom of New Zealand, to Norway, right through, and every small town that you go to, you will find this hardcore scene. You know? So it's like, it's really true. Like, there is, there is that really happens. And so it, it begs this kind of strange question about what is the evolution of things, and what is avant-garde, and what is experimental, and and why do we as humans create these sort of, you know, I'm fascinated by that. We create these sort of strange sort of cultural musical ghettos that we that connect us somehow or make us feel at home. It just sort of happens somehow. I mean, there's as a Can everyone connect with that? Some people can. Yeah. Yeah, but I like to ask, like, so you're kind of saying at the same time that everything has been invented already and there is no limit to your mouth anymore. You can just create it and, but inside a certain space. No, I, I think that the palette is bigger. I think the palette is bigger now. It's more that the idea or the, the term experimental and what it refers to now refers to something old. Um, in yeah. a way, it it, it's almost reserved for a certain set of um, experiments and uh, musical kind of endeavours that existed within that age, and that perhaps now that doesn't represent what you would see as what is actually experimental now. Yeah. It's not that experimental stops and that no one can experiment mm -hmm. anymore. Of course. Mm -hmm. No, I'm just saying, like, so you kind of uh, saying that that kind of experimental was a period, it was an, an historical period, and it's gone. And now what is now is another kind of experimental moment. Yeah. Which can go somewhere else. And, uh, exactly. A different <coughs> media, and, like, yeah. support, whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 I guess, yeah, I guess it's like the, 
it's that much bigger. It's like mm -hmm. to be experimental doesn't mean you have to break the instrument anymore. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I felt like you were referring more to like electro acoustic experimental mm. scene. But do you think that that is really over like augmenting um, like yeah, acoustic instruments or, or building on instruments? Do you think that area is, is done? No, no, no. not at all. I think there's a lot of different things to build on in this um, in this realm. What do you think of the idea of like what access people have to music, building our perception of it? Like for example, in regards to experimental is dead. Like what if Rihanna took this song you just showed it, yes. which I think the music was such so nice and current sounding for me. What if it was Rihanna standing in the background singing a pop vocal over yes. the same song? Would that mean that this was the new mainstream? Yeah, I guess, I mean, that's kind of... Because then everyone hears it, like millions of people will hear it. Yeah. Compared with, I don't know how many people have heard this in the last uh, 15 years. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, it's kind of interesting like how far things will, how far things will go. And it's definitely true that some of the concepts and techniques that come from so-called experimental music are now employed largely in pop music. Um, I think um, that um, I think one of the more one of the more complex issues around pop music um, is not whether it's avant-garde or what it is deploying. To be honest, I think is is gender. I think there's some really strange and problematic issues surrounding the presentation of pop music, which have been going on since the 1920s, probably. But there's that whole thing, like like you say, if if it, why would it be different if a female artist was singing over that? Would change that somehow it changes symbolism and its meaning. So pop music is really is a really complicated I think it's a very complicated craft and a really complicated um, social um, uh, device. Um, and I can recommend actually a really great I put it in the reading list. There's a really great book by um, a guy from England called, uh, I can't even remember the title, Chris Cutler. Whoops, I haven't done that. Um, and yeah, well, he's writing a lot about these kind of issues surrounding the way that experimental music and jazz and um, African American black music is represented in the pop realm. Um, yeah, so that's kind of an interesting area, I think. We kind of uh, organically opened out to questions, I think. Yes. And it's about that time. So, yes. <laughs> does anybody else have any questions? Yeah. Sorry, can I ask the last one? Uh, you were mentioned that you're very into rock music earlier. Yes. And I'm curious how did you make the, this, the transition? from 
Yeah, I still listen to this kind of music. Yeah, I mean, how, how did you see this transition? Like, does it take very long? And how did you feel? I think that the, the thing with, for, for me, as when I first discovered, my parents are quite young. Um, and my father was really into music. So he was playing stuff. He's only 17 years, 18 years older than me. So in the 80s, he was playing stuff like The Cure and, um, you know, that kind of sort of underground British music and metal, Black Sabbath and all of this kind of stuff. So music was very exciting. To me, it was this really exciting thing as a teenager when I first, and as a kid, really discovering it, and then as a teenager. And what was exciting about it was that it was, there was something really, there was always something strange about it. That's what I loved about it. So then when, as I was growing up, there were different things that evolved, then techno came along, and that was really strange. And so I loved it, and then drum and bass came along, and that was strange. And so all of these different steps of the evolution, then there was grunge and nirvana and everything like that. So all of these different steps, I always felt like there was some kind of vitality and potency in what punk and rock music was that I always wanted to find again. And then I found that in electronic music, especially in drum and bass, and then in abstract electronic music, I found, it, again, the same kind of excitement and thrill. And then when I discovered as I got older, I discovered electroacoustic music and more serious electronic music. And the same thing happened. I got this thrill from discovering it. So in a weird way, I kind of did it in reverse. So I, I went backwards and, I, and to discover things from the past that I found were really radical and exciting and were thrilling to me. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I have another question. Um, Considering what JB said about uh, that video and that sound, and if Rihanna was singing, and then everyone would know. Uh, and if we're talking in terms of not experimental music as the genre it was in the time, but as we said, actual experimental music, mm -hmm. and um, where would the boundary be between that being commercial pop music and experimental music? Does it happen when Rihanna? comes on stage and sings, or where, where are the boundaries? Because there are ex experimental people in different genres. And yeah. Where is the boundary? When, when do you call it experimental music, and when is it not experimental music? I, I don't know. It's, I think it's a really good question. And we see that, um, yeah, I really don't know how to, to respond to that, except to say that, um, that um, I definitely see that occurring somehow and that there is this kind of place where, where thing, it really comes down to the way that things are staged. And <clears throat> I had this, um, this issue when, um, when I started to do my acoustic music. Um, I don't know if this, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but, um, but I had this issue when I started to do my acoustic music and I had a group of people who I was playing with, a cellist, a percussionist, and another guitarist, and two vocalists. And we played quite a lot in New Zealand at different, in, around 
2008 at different festivals. And we found that if we wore black clothes, and like black clothes and white shirts, that people would say that it was an avant-garde experimental thing. <laughs> and if we were wearing jeans and, um, and um, Czech shirts, they would say that it was an alt country um, thing. <laughs> right? And it was the, the, the music was the same every night. But uh, we noticed that the way that we were coded was dependent on the way that this certain reviewer would perceive us. And which makes me think of another um, person who I've been talking a lot about as an artist called Fembi Sodell, who is um, a really amazing electroacoustic composer from Melbourne. And she is around 30, and um, she is incredibly beautiful. And she's had so many problems with the fact that she is incredibly beautiful that now she doesn't go to her gigs. She prepares her music on her on a drive and she sends that and with instructions to the sound operator of how to operate her gig. And sometimes she shows up to the gig. Other times she doesn't. But the, the principle of what she's doing is that she's saying that the way that she's codified as being a Caucasian beautiful woman has completely interfered with the way that her work is perceived. And I guess that's kind of one of the issues, is that I think in a, in a deeper cultural context we have to think about the way that these things happen. And I know this from art school because I know the way that the ego and the appearance of the artist seems to have so much to do with the way that they are perceived in the, in the realm. And I think this is an interesting topic surrounding music because you get people like uh, the girl that's really big now, um, what's her name? FKA Twigs. She's kind of, she's one of those people that's sort of toying, playing with that, exactly that to me because that, that's what I see as her art seems to be playing with that. Um, and I guess a lot of people have been doing that. You could argue that, you know, maybe Prince and Mick Jagger and Madonna and everyone is doing, you know, 80% of the job of what they do is playing with their image. You know. And that's a really great question, like why is FKA Twigs not considered to be experimental? Because it's pretty experimental. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if that's like a tangent, but the thing with Fenby Sodell and what she does, I thought was a really interesting and extreme, quite an extreme gesture um, to make herself invisible. And I really like that as well because I love that whole, I love um, artists that are able to sustain that kind of mystery by being a fan of the residents and and even people like Apex when he sort of has this kind of invisibility to his thing. Oh, I have another question, if you're done with this one. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> 
would you think that receiving a classical uh, education music would in somehow compromise your ability to be spontaneous and crea creative in experimental music? Like the knowledge of classical music or be able to play yeah. classical music would compromise your creativity? I don't know. Yeah, that's a hard one. Because it's something I've been asking myself for years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, just I think this was the right moment to ask. Something. For sure. <laughs> so I, I, I know. <laughs> well, from I know people who <coughs> I know people who it is very hard for them to. But you have to like think uh, John outside. Zorn. He was like classical jazz musician and did experimental music. Yeah. It didn't disturb him, so I think you can do it. Yeah, I think it depends on the will of, if anything, I think that having the, the background would, would only enhance what you, it could only enhance what you do. So. This comment kind of brings you back to, brings us back to what you said in the beginning with the fight yes. as the process and that being a big part of instrumental music. and. If if that is sort of a, a force that's pulling you back, it's going to make you pull more forward, and then yes. you have that opposition. Yes, exactly. I think from, from my experience and what I've found of, of uh, friends and, and people who play, especially with that kind of classical background, especially in, in free jazz, for instance, you know, you'll find a lot of free jazz artists come from, most free jazz artists come from that, from some form of very heavy classical training. And most of that comes out of the fact of wanting to break all those rules that they've learned for such yeah, a long period yeah, of time. Yeah. And in a way that kind of, you know, that ties in. But I think what ends up happening in the end is that they create another set of rules. And that actually, what you're always playing in is a set of rules. So it doesn't matter what set they are, they're just defined in a different way. And I think that's what we were talking about with limitations earlier, is that that with that background you're just defining the way that you play of course that's going to help you from muscle memory training it's going to help you in terms of knowing where you might want to go for certain for evoking certain types of emotions i might say quite loosely um, but at the same time that might be completely not what the project is about but i would say with a lot of experimental music a lot of it's trying to reject that emotional quality that was brought about through that kind of Western classical, um, classical. Uh, sorry, for, through Western classical music, it's trying to find other systems that can exist, that you can play with, and that you can also break. Mm -hmm. So I think always with things like that, with the classical training, it's a tool in the box, just the same as any production things are a tool in the box. Yes. All of these things, the more that you know about all of it, the better. Yes. Not, to me, anyway, yeah, that's, that's I how I see it. Yeah, it's I just agree. about being open and wanting to approach all those different, all those different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you decided to learn the guitar, as you said, do you feel like you left experimentation behind then, or did you find a new platform to experiment on? I think that I found a new platform because I couldn't help but want to... Um, I couldn't help... I mean, I really only learned to do one certain type of thing, and then... And then, um, yeah, it altered the way that, that I treated that. So every seems like every sort of year or two, there's some kind of evolution or change in, in my 
in my technique or whatever. But I don't really think there is that different. My oldest teacher, Phil Dadson, at the art school told me when I was banging guitars with hammers and stuff, um, he said, you should learn to play properly because in 20 years from now, you're going to, there will, it will be really important for you to have a real technique. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. And then, sure enough, that was really true. It was really, really true. I really hit a wall, and I was really frustrated that I didn't have the technique. I didn't really know how to properly play. I could improvise, but I didn't have the technique of someone who was mainly because my aunt asked me to play um, um, guitar with her. She was a jazz singer, and she asked me to play guitar with her at um, a wedding. And it was just so embarrassing because she gave me the red book and I didn't know what the red book was. And she was like, she's like, we're doing Fly Me to the Moon. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. So what are you talking about? Did you bring out your chopsticks? <laughs> I was like yelling at me saying, it's like, five, eight. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she didn't speak to me for quite a long time after that. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that that was kind of, I thought jazz was supposed to be easy, but that wasn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool, any more questions? Yeah. Um, it's just like, I got my own thing about this next question, but I'm just interested in yours. Like, once, uh, I started to study the first time about Stockhausen, which was you know, two, three years ago. Um, I was really interested in everything around it, but it just took s my teacher took it so fast, and I just couldn't have enough time and space to think about this. And it was like Stockhausen was really like to be related with the historical background, which was back in the time. And you were saying that um, for this. The chapter's not closed. I would like to know if, um, if the next time, if there could be any place in the world, some kind of circumstance, or just like things which related to Stockhausen, which made him to make this kind of music. Mm -hmm. if, if this period is coming back, if you think, if we're just moving back to the history, or just creating something more massive, or something which actually could change the music, yeah, in yeah. the industry and everything else, like now the experiment to become, you know, part of everyday's musician or yeah, you know what I mean. It's just yeah, like I know exactly what you mean, and and I think it's a hard question because I kind of wonder. There's a writer I can't remember who. Someone wrote that that it's maybe that it's going to happen in a different art form. You know maybe like the next change and maybe it won't happen in music the next radical evolution may happen in a completely different art form yeah. and it may take longer for music to change i mean music sort of evolves in these patterns and and it depends in some ways on the way that it's influenced by certain things so i don't think that it's impossible so for example the revolutionization of jazz music in America happened because of the introduction of a culture of the African people coming and joining military bands and that caused 
that was there was a cultural evolution that also assisted the musical revolution or, or, or was concurrent with the musical evolution and that maybe like the Stockhausen and Cornelius Cardew and John Cage evolution was an evolution that happened within European academia at a certain time and maybe that evolution isn't going to happen in that place it's going to happen maybe somewhere else maybe it's going to happen on the street or just here at that place you know or in really it maybe it's going to happen in um, in um, the next kind of major musical evolution may not happen in those conventional places and will probably be influenced by some kind of cultural clash like a not clash but a but a, a multiculturalization so for example here in Berlin there's a pretty amazing thing going on because of that because of what happened in 89 and then the Detroit guys coming here and then that influence then being influenced by the German electronica and all of that and then creating this huge kind of spectrum of of uh, of musical evolution that has left all of these different little branches of styles but all kind of stemming from the same sort of place it's the famous way of relating this just to the music industry is like Back in the days, you, it was really, really radical what Stockhausen did to the music theory. He yeah, he yeah. just didn't use it. He just was writing his own music theory. Yeah, using elements of the first one. And like, in my opinion, we are using like, especially when we're talking about the American industry, it's just like a given shape. You know, yeah, you just fit in or not. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about to the time. Someday, something or somebody's going to break that shape. Exactly. Yeah, I really think that's going to happen too. Sure. I really agree, but I don't know what form it will take. Yeah, that's like that. I mean, now it could be an app, or it could be, you know, it may not be an album yeah. <laughs> that blows people's minds. It might be something completely different. Like it could be a piece of hardware or software that that revolutionizes the way that we perceive music and the way that we treat it i don't know or it may just evolve into a completely different thing maybe it's a matter of time yeah but yeah i definitely think that like it's a really interesting place to be because it is a completely new for an industry um, it's a very new as an industry it's in a very unique place because never has music had such an had been so poor for example it's never been so broke that um, but it's never had such a broad potential and accessibility it's just like it's incredible you know? um, it will be interesting to see what comes of that and yeah. although we're we're only really sorry <coughs> <coughs> We're only really at the start of that, and it's, that's also something to kind of remember, is that when I studied, for instance, <coughs> I was reading books about, like, that proliferated Spotify. Mm. You know, the idea that Spotify would exist was, was something that Gerd Leonhard and, and David Cusack were writing books about. You know, like one day, 
will be able to get music like water. Yeah. We pay for it on a monthly bill and it will just arrive to the house. And that was like 2005 and I was going, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's 10 years ago. Yeah. And like, but still we're right at the start of that. As a, as a musical revolution, still it's, it's 10 years that we've, uh, well, no, it's not even 10 years, it's, it's probably five or six years that music's been, um, is being distributed and consumed in that format. And that format, or at least these format shifts, also have a fairly large impact on the way that some of these ideas come about. I'm not saying as well that, that we can compare a format to, to, um, to Stockhausen's ideas of, of composition, but in a way that they're pretty much the same. You're talking about um, a way of delivering music or a way of composing music. And in a way, it's not that, that disjointed from, from a format either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree completely. It's really interesting that question of how that yeah how that's going to open up to the next what is going to because it means that the model is going to be the, the business model if you want for one of a better word it's that the business model is going to be have to be redefined. I mean, Tidal is just about to come around the corner, so I know everyone's, I know everyone's looking forward to that. What's that? Tidal. Tidal? What's yeah, it was, I mean, there was a big, there was a big um, <laughs> kind of, uh, what would you call it? It's basically Spotify. There was some online fury. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, essentially, it's essentially Spotify, but it's run by, right. um, yeah, some, some fairly major artists. Right. And, and that for them this is, uh, this is uh, the new digital revolution. Okay. Um, um. I want, I've got something that I want to show you as well in regards to this and I want to tell you that um, I've done maybe um, in my whole career I've probably done um, probably made 12 albums that have been released on CD and vinyl on indie labels. Um, most of them probably wouldn't sell more than a thousand copies worldwide, right? Um, I signed a publishing deal with um, an <coughs> independent publishing company who collects royalties for me. Um, and that, um, I did that in 2005. Yeah, signed that in 2005. So I've been a recording artist since 1996. Um, 95, 95. So this year I've been a recording artist for, for 20 years. And I've worked on 16 albums of my own and my own projects. And also played on maybe um, another 10 or 15 different projects of people. And in terms of the publishing and the mechanical royalties, um, I'm super excited because um, I can show you this. Um, my royalty statement. It's just come in. Yes. <laughs> I got it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an amazing, what an amazing industry. 
You think they will actually pay you the one cent? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna rent it. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the wall. I thought that I would show you that because I don't want it to be, um, to be a cynical end to this otherwise really fantastic uh, talk. But um, this is kind of the reality that there is something, somewhere along the way, there is a chain of, of um, you know, live stream, um, you know, web streaming, radio broadcasts, record sales, all of this stuff, and that is kind of what, that was my defense, that, that was my fault, and that I didn't defend myself from that at the beginning. I should never have signed a publishing contract. Um, it was because that is like the last place where the industry and the labels can still make money off artists. Should be better to do it yourself. I would be better to, to make records and CDs and sell them myself. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that's something that only applies, you know, within your area? Or would you say that, that you would think, or would you think the same way if you were making rock music and you were a touring band? Would I you think the same way if you were a jazz musician? Yeah, that's exactly the only way that I've been able to survive is from playing live, selling records and CDs on the road, and it's becoming more and more like that, or working in other fields, like with filmmakers, um, dance companies, um, universities um, and yeah that I mean for the kind of stuff that I do I mean it's, there's no way I'm not deluded to think that I should be able to make a career out of it I have to do all of these other different things and when I was at university um, <coughs> Tony Conrad was my um, teacher for one year he was the guest lecturer and he came in the first day everyone wanted to be in his lecture there was 150 students there and he said um, no one in this room is ever going to be famous <laughs> so get a job that you that you can that will support you to make your art because if you don't have something else to support you to make your art you'll never be able to make it and um, you know, if it's like being a technician or being an editor or being a sound engineer or being a good camera operator or whatever it is that you do in this sort of artistic realm, to have something that, like, that is a really solid skill is a really great thing, like a, a really consistent skill can really save you in tough times and it can maybe give you space to experiment. I think that's actually a really nice and succinct end to yeah. to this talk. Cool. So I'd like to say thank you. Thank you. Uh,